Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1003. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Remember the rest he has in mind from last week. No, no enemies, no sickness or death, creation bountiful, everything rightly ordered, everybody made whole, all in the presence of God. And that rest is held out to you in the gospel. Jesus opened the way for us to enter that rest, a rest he already enjoys. And so he says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, meaning the disobedience of the Israelites in the wilderness. Verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Let's pray. Father, your word... Indeed, is living and active, even as we read it together now and study it, it is living and it is active. I pray that we would submit ourselves to it and find your name glorified here today. Amen. So being a pastor, people will sometimes ask, what pushed me in that direction? And several factors. I enjoyed teaching God's Word. I loved serving the church. I had a great burden to see the gospel upheld. Also, several godly men affirmed certain giftings along the way and suggested I consider serving in that role. But the initial push wasn't actually unique to those who might eventually become pastors. The initial push was a series of God's Word powerfully impacting different people. Me, my dad, and a group of students. I grew up in the church, and many would have called me a Christian because of my behavior. Uh, outwardly, I conformed to the morality of my surroundings. I participated in church functions, but inwardly, I wanted nothing of God. And eventually, I started letting people know that. I told the church leadership that I didn't believe in God. I argued at school that Christianity was just a crutch for weak people. 
My dad talked to me about the money I was making as a welder, and I remember walking out the door saying, well, if God wants my money, he can come and take it. And then at 17, I heard the gospel. Others had preached Christ to me, especially my mother. But for reasons only explained by sovereign grace, I listened this time. I went into a church chasing a girl with all the wrong reasons, but I came out of that church a new creation. The Word of God wrecked me. It exposed me. The Word of God penetrated my callous heart. The Word changed my life forever. And then I watched the Word powerfully impact my dad. My dad would pray with us at night, but he wasn't the spiritual leader uh, of our household. My mom functioned that way. But after seeing the Word transform my life, he started sitting under the same preaching that I had heard, preaching that explained the Scriptures clearly and presented Christ in all His saving glory. And that Word not only awakened my dad, he started leading the family. And to this day, he continues to mature in Christ, lead my mother, and serve the church with zeal. I also watched the word powerfully impact a group of students. Picture a Wednesday night student meeting, you know, what some would call a youth group. For years, they had played games for an hour and 45 minutes and would tack Jesus on at the end of the night. And I came in and simply started teaching the Word. And within months, I watched a game night turn into a two-hour Bible study with their parents sticking around afterwards with both elbows on either side of the Bible, asking more questions, wanting more of the Word, and longing to, to know how to obey it. That was... That series of events was the initial push. Seeing the Word of God mightily impact the lives of all of these people. How is the Word of God impacting your life? I don't mean how much more do you understand what's in it. That's important. The question is more so, how is what you do understand... In the word, how is it moving you to obey and submit to Christ? In our passage, we'll see that if God's word is not changing you, that does not mean his word is ineffective, is not powerful. It means that his word will expose you at the judgment for what you really are. And that's a sobering thought. And it demands a response. Either we bow before the Word of God, or it will judge us. Verses 12 and 13 are the focus today. But we must remember they have a context It's not uncommon to encounter these verses in a book or in a sermon to support a doctrine of Scripture, and rightly so. But often the context goes goes missing. 
And if not careful, we walk away knowing a few more things about God's Word, but without allowing God's Word to address us as it's written here. And I don't want that to happen. So notice, first of all, how verse 12 supports verse 11 with the word for. For the Word of God is living and active. So it it belongs to a larger argument. In fact, it closes the argument. Uh, He began in chapter 3, verse 7. In chapter 3, verse 7, he quotes Psalm 95. And he says, The Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. In other words, he quotes the Word of God. He explains the warning in that Word of God. Don't harden your hearts, otherwise you won't enter God's rest. And then he explains the promise in that word of God. We saw that last, last time. God's rest for the believer. And then finally he tells us what to do in light of that word of God. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active. What word? Well, specifically that word, right? The word from Psalm 95, he's been explaining for two chapters. Now, we can make a more general application to the whole of Scripture. After all, he does use Genesis 2 and Exodus 20 and Joshua to, uh, to explain why he interprets Psalm 95 the way he does for the church, But the immediate context points to the Word of God in Psalm 95 and how that Word should affect us in light of Scripture's storyline and the finished work of Jesus. Now, on that note about Jesus, some have viewed the Word of God here as referring to Jesus. Uh, Much like God's Son is known as The Word in John 1, or the Word of God in Revelation 19, that's the way some read it here. And one could argue that Christ is the final Word of God, that He spoke, right? Chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, Christ, too, is living. Uh, Christ has a sharp sword coming from His mouth in Revelation 19. More importantly, doesn't verse 13 suggest a person here? Without a break, it says, And no creature is hidden from his sight. His sight, right? Might his sight in verse 13 look back to the word of verse 12? So perhaps the person of Jesus is in view. But a few observations lead me to take a narrower reading. And one is the context of him explaining the written word from Psalm 95. And secondly, each time he refers to the word leading up to verse 12, it refers to the word declared by angels or the gospel message spoken to the wilderness generation, which also abides for us. The same expression, the word of God, also appears in chapter 13, verse 7. And there the gospel word from scripture is more clearly in view. Also, Christ does have a sword from his mouth in Revelation 19. But that's just the point. He isn't the sword itself. The sword represents the word. 
of judgment coming from his mouth. It's imagery from Isaiah 49. With regard to his sight in verse 13, it could simply point to God in verse 12. That is, God's word is living and no creature is hidden from God's sight. Or it may simply continue the personification of the word. It is quite a a poetic section. We have to admit, though, that part of the complexity here is that God is Trinity... And God is present in His Word. He's personally present in His Word. So we could easily say that God, in Christ, by the Spirit, is personally present in His Word. At that point, how do you decide? Also, God will judge the world, but He will judge the world in Christ. And that very well fits with verse 13 as well. But you have the two interpretations, and I'll leave it for you to do your homework and weigh them for yourselves. The outcome isn't all that different. So for now, we'll walk through the passage seeing the word of God in verse 12 to mean the written word. But more specifically, it's the written word as it continues speaking by the Holy Spirit. Right? Chapter 3, verse 7, the Holy Spirit says, meaning still says today through that song. It's also the written word as that word finds its climax in the person and work of Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 2, in these last days, God has spoken to us by a son. Jesus is God's ultimate word. That word, given by promise in the Old Testament and by fulfillment in the New, that word is in view. That word is living and active. Still, how does that support verse 11? Like this. Verse 11 says, Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest. And and it goes on to explain that if we don't strive to enter God's rest, we will fall into the same patterns of disobedience that kept Israel from entering God's rest. And verse 12 comes in to say, And God wasn't kidding around. He swore his word of judgment over them and they didn't enter his rest. And God is just as serious when he says to us in Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. How do we know, his, how do we know he's serious? His word is living and active. That's why we must avoid patterns of disobeying Him. His Word is powerfully penetrating. His judgment is inescapably exposing. You won't get away with it. If you treat God's Word lightly, it will find you out. If you ignore the warning of Psalm 95, it will expose you. The hope, though, is is that when it finds you out, you submit to it. That is, before you reach the judgment seat of Christ. When you hear it today, you submit to it. And keep submitting to it. So that's the context, and that's how it fits in with with the argument. uh, Especially verse 11. Let's now look at verses 12 to 13 more carefully on their own. Why... Why strive? Why make every effort? Why persevere to enter God's rest? Because God's Word is alive and powerfully penetrating. That's the first thing we see. God's Word is alive and powerfully penetrating. 
He lists uh, several qualities in, in verse 12. We'll see three of them. It's, it's living, it's penetrating, it's discerning. God's Word is living and active, it says. Now, it's true that God's Word is life-giving. We see that in many, many places in Scripture. But that doesn't seem to be the emphasis here. And we know that because of the way he kind of couples two words together, living and active. Right? Living and active together speak more to the Word having an abiding and powerful relevance. There's not a sense in which God's Word ever amounts to a dead letter. You know that expression? You know, a society might have, you know, a written law in the books, but in practice, it really doesn't matter. More like guidelines, really. Do you know the line? It's not enforced. It has no abiding relevance. God's Word is the opposite of that. It's not just black ink on white paper. It's it's not mere pixels that you swipe on your Bible app. Even though he spoke Psalm 95 thousands of years ago, that word is still living. It's active. It's not just power, but power exerted. It's fully effective in what God means his word to accomplish. Picture it this way. In the word... Jesus, by the Spirit, sits in active judgment over us. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. There's no neutrality when you pick up the Word. In the Word, Jesus actively sits in judgment over us. As He lives, His Word lives. As He acts... His word acts. Think about it even in light of the wilderness generation that he's been talking about. When God swore that the disobedient would not enter his rest. That was his word. He gave his word. And he swore that they wouldn't enter. That word actually did something, didn't it? Remember how it goes in Numbers 14. God swears they won't enter his rest. The people mourn. They even confess. Oh, we have sinned. And then they say, okay. Okay, now we're really going to do it, God. We're going to go up to the place the Lord has promised. And Moses says, too late, basically. The Lord had spoken, and he said, you would not enter the land. They tried it anyway. They tried it without God. And what happens? The text says, you shall fall by the sword. And they did fall. In other words, the word God spoke was living and active. Meaning, when it says, don't harden your hearts, as they did in the rebellion... When it says, take care lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, pay careful attention. Listen up. These aren't human words, which are often ineffective and don't pan out. God's words are living and active. His promise of rest is also living and active. Not just the warning, but the promise, too, is living and active. God stands by his word. 
He holds out the promise to all who believe. He will secure them in his presence. The question is, is do you take him at his word? Does that promise rest move you to labor well for his namesake? God's word is also penetrating. It's another quality it brings up here. It's penetrating. Verse 12 says, It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. Now the point here isn't it to explain human nature, what we consist of. That, that humans have a soul and a spirit, and, and they, they are two separate entities. The New Testament uh, uses these, these terms, soul and spirit, interchangeably throughout. Better is to see the writer stacking up language to describe our innermost person. It's a division within, not a separation of. The soul and spirit are like the joints and the marrow. That is, they're hidden, they're inward, they're, they're out of sight. But like the double-edged sword, when it slices through thick armor and then through your flesh and then through the bone all the way down to the marrow, just like that kind of sword, so also God's word penetrates to the core of our being. Our defense mechanisms that often keep other humans out of our business Our facades and pasted-on smiles that often fool other people. Our callous self that wants to suppress the truth. They're no match for the Word of God when it cuts. It penetrates to such a depth that soul and spirit lie exposed. You can do nothing to protect the most secret parts of your being. That's the point. God's word is also discerning. Discerning. It says discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible will often refer to the innermost person as the heart. Right? And it's not so much the seat of affection as, as in our culture, but it's, it is the control center of life. Right? Our thoughts, our words, our actions, our reactions, our motivations all stem from the heart. Right? This, is what, this is what Jesus taught too. It's from the heart that the mouth speaks. Right? Depending on the heart's moral condition, depending on its willingness to submit to God, the heart determines whether we live in ways that please God or in ways that displease God. God's word penetrates to that depth and then discerns or judges the thoughts and intentions of our heart. What's good, what's evil, what's pure, what's impure. And that's really significant because it comes in a context that's warning us not to harden our hearts, isn't it? Chapter 3, verse 8. You can see them. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Then look at chapter 3, verse 10. There, where he says, they're always going astray in their heart. Or chapter 3, verse 12. 
Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. So in this context, then he talks about God's word penetrating to that heart. It discerns whether there's actual faith or not, whether there's belief or unbelief, whether there's true worship or idolatry. That's crazy unsettling. Because we can fool each other in this room. We're really good at it too. There might be deeper things lying very, very deep. And, and we only confess, confess part of it. To, to let others know, oh yeah, we're trying to deal with that. But we leave the other things hidden. Not so with the word of God. You will not fool it. It's crazy unsettling also because... I know how prone my heart is to wonder. And my knowledge of my heart is incomplete. It's limited. I don't even know half my heart's junk. And there's a lot. At the same time, it's good to know there's actually something to cut that deeply. Right? It's good to know there's actually a surgeon who can get in there and address my heart problems. If hardness of heart keeps me from entering God's rest, we should be thankful there's someone whose sword can address that hardness. There's actually something sharp enough to penetrate our calluses, to, to, to cut through the hardness in our defenses and, and lay us bare to humble us and change us. Only God knows the true state of our hearts, but he addresses that heart with the word. No part of us can escape the careful scrutiny of God's word. Why else should we strive? Why else make every effort to enter God's rest? Well, in verse 13 we see, because God's judgment is searching and inescapably exposing. God's judgment is searching and inescapably exposing. Verse 13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So no man, no woman, no child, president, poor, rich, angel, devil, no creature is hidden from his sight. And it's not even that you might try to hide later on from him and can't. You're not hidden now. As you sit there today, he sees you through and through. As I preach, he sees to the depth of my soul, soul and, he, and he knows every wayward thought that I think. To give in to sin is to live as if God isn't there. To borrow time at the office when you're on the clock is to live as if God doesn't see To only disclose part of the truth, and not all the truth, is to live like an atheist. To be sweet to your wife in public, but harsh at home, is to pretend like you can hide from God. But in reality, we're naked before the Lord. 
we be running like Adam and Eve to hide ourselves in the Lord's presence. But the truth is we can't. In fact, the word exposed in the ESV or laid bare in other translations was used in literature to describe the twisting of the neck. Think of a, of a wrestler where he gets his opponent locked down and he puts him in a chokehold and, and lifts up his neck. Or in another context, think of a priest twisting up the neck of an animal to slit its throat. This is the way it was used. We stand before God absolutely vulnerable. That vulnerable. There's no escaping his eyes. He sees everything. God never has to learn anything about you. He just knows. He knows it all. Everything you've done, say, think, desire. You must give an account to him. Jesus said on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Paul said Jesus will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Among others in the New Testament, one motivation to persevere in faith is God's inescapable judgment. One motivation for making certain that you are trusting Jesus and truly following him is God's inescapable judgment. I don't mean it's just a motivation for those who don't know Christ to come to know Christ. It's a motivation for those who know Christ to remain faithful to him. He sees everything he knows. We will give an account for the way we love others, the way we use our money and spend our time, the way we speak to our children, the way we nurture and protect our wives, the way we work and use our skills for his kingdom. That's why the Bible says to work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord we will receive the inheritance as our reward. We serve the Lord Christ. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. His judgment is searching and inescapably exposing. Therefore, don't be a pretender. Don't, don't put up facades. You know, don't grow lazy and indifferent to the kingdom as if that day isn't coming, as if, as if he can't see you now. Also, if a hardened heart, if a heart of unbelief if a heart that's always going astray and giving into patterns of disobedience, if that kind of heart keeps you from entering God's rest, what are you doing to address it? I said earlier that with our limited knowledge, it's impossible for us to know our heart fully. Even the stubbornness we may see, it's impossible for us to, uh, for to, for us to assess it rightly and comprehensively. 
and sort through all the various motivations driving it? You know, there are times when I have to tell Rachel or other brothers in the faith, look, I'm feeling this way or I keep acting this way and I think it's ungodly. I just don't know why or where it's coming from. Can you help me see it? Can you help me discern why my heart is in unbelief here? We're limited in our ability to assess and discern. We're limited in our ability to penetrate to the depth of our unbelief. But the Word of God isn't limited in its ability. Therefore, if the state of your heart is of a matter of eternal importance... And if God's word is living and able to penetrate and discern your heart, then bring yourself before the word of God. Regularly. Every day. It's no small thing when we tell you to keep reading your Bible. Right? We've got all kinds of junk in here. And you're limited in your ability to change it. And the elders are limited in our ability to change it. And their counselors are limited in their ability to change it. But God is not limited. God in Christ by the Spirit is present in His Word. I'm not kidding. I get these expressions on people's face sometimes. When I back them up, right, they're like, This is going wrong. This is going wrong. This is going wrong. How's your time in the Word going? Eh, it's been better. Eh, every once in a while. It's like, okay, Christianity 101, I'm going to read your Bible. And you're going to pray. We're going to start there. I want you to fix me. I can't fix you. Go to the Word. Right? What better if Christ, if God in Christ by the Spirit is present, living and active in the Word, what better place to go? Now we need each other. Keep coming and keep coming to each other. But we got to be pointing each other to the Word. By His Word, God goes to work personally and He is able to penetrate to every place we need to change. So prioritize your Bible intake. Your life depends on it. Making it to God's eternal rest depends on it. You know, just as you plan for other things in life, plan to sit before the Word. Set aside time to read and meditate on Scripture. Listen to it on your podcast or or whatever, on your way to work. Memorize it. Uh, The church has a fighter verse schedule. We print it in your worship guide every week. Pay attention to it. Memorize those texts when you're at the gym or something or with other brothers and sisters. Talk about the word with one another. And be honest with, with, with each other when you're finding the Bible boring. And then pray for God to renew your joy and give, and give more light. Perhaps serving people all day. Uh, Long nights with babies crying. You have a rushed morning. Or you just, you know, had a bad use of of time. 
and, and all of those various factors of life, they prevented you from getting in the Word. Don't be shy from admitting it, right? Jesus is our justification, not Bible reading plans. And then ask other brothers and sisters to feed you with what they read. The point is just getting the Word in your life. God's Word is living and active. It alone cuts to the heart. But be careful here. It's not simply about getting more Bible data in you. Right? I know Bible scholars who nearly have both Testaments memorized in Greek and Hebrew, but they're not Christians. It's also not simply treating the Bible as an object of our study. Right? Should we study the Bible? Rigorously. It's necessary to make God's Word the object of our study and the object of our meditation. But if that's all it is, then we're missing the words of this passage. Who is the real object of scrutiny according to verses 12 to 13? It is not the Word of God. It is you. And it is me. That should inform our posture when we open the Word of God. Or when we hear the Word of God. Or when a brother sends you one of those, or a sister sends you a text message with the Word of God. That should should inform our posture. It's not merely, this is the Word I study and, 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 and I scrutinize. It is, I am the object upon the upon whom the Word acts. I am the object whom the, the word examines, whom the word penetrates. So know that God's word examines us. In the word, Jesus, by the Spirit, sits in active judgment over us. Ultimately, we are the object when coming to the word. Ultimately, God's word puts us in our place beneath his rule. Ultimately, he opens us and sees us for who we really are inside. He wields the sword on us, slices through our defenses, exposes our inner secrets, and he wars against our sin. Now, painful as that sounds, this is how we approach the word of God. We say, Lord... You know all things. Lord, I am not hidden from you. Lord, you saw the way I spoke to my wife. Lord, you saw the way I treated my children. Lord, you knew when I ignored that brother or sister. Do your work on me. Everything that needs to happen... To keep me persevering. Do your work on me. This is how we approach the Bible. We are commanded to take up the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians 6 says, which is the Word of God. But in taking it up, we must remember it is the sword of the Spirit. Ultimately, He wields it and He makes it effective. 
Meaning long before the word becomes a sword in our hand, it is a sword in God's hand to penetrate us. Hearing a message like this, verses 12 and 13, leaves many of us laid bare, doesn't it? Myself included. We find ourselves, even now, unhidden, exposed before the Lord. Perhaps his word penetrated where it hadn't before, and you find yourself wholly undone this morning. What you deserve before his holy searching gaze is judgment. What you need is mercy. And that's where Hebrews 4 goes next. Here is another living and active word. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is a living and active word right there. And it is good news. God in Christ is present in these words and he speaks it over you. Let us with confidence, because of his blood, because of what he accomplished at the cross and rose from the dead, because of that, let us draw near to the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, Lord willing, we're going to talk more extensively about that next week. But for now, we get to remember it and celebrate it at the Lord's table. Let's take the Lord's Supper together, knowing that the one before whom we are exposed also made provision for us to enter God's presence. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.